Hello there. Welcome to the show where each episode I tell my guests that the world is ending and that they must place the movies that had the biggest impact on their life into their own movie time capsule. Why am I talking like this? Well, it's because today's guest is a true horror fan. I mean, he directs it, he edits it, and he also stars in it. So we're going to talk about some horror today. We're also going to talk about Scorsese, some David Fincher. We get goosebumps along the way. And get this, his choice for the best horror movie isn't even considered a horror movie until you think about what the core of the movie is. When you hear the answer, it might just blow your mind. I hope you enjoy. It is time to talk about movies. All your favorites, all your loved ones. We will hear them and we'll cheer them. It is time for Movie Time Capsule. Today I am joined by a true auteur filmmaker. He is a writer, director, editor, actor. You can see him in tons of horror films. He is one of the nicest guys you will ever meet on the street. Please welcome Matt Mercer. Uh, thanks so much, Luke. Thank <laughs> one you of for the coming. nicest guys you can meet on the street. Honestly, you are so nice. I mean, when we started working together in the casting world, uh, oh, yeah. You know, I was brand new to the company, all three media that we we're working for. And I was just like, mm. you were so welcoming and I'll, you know, you know, you never forget your first impression. So truly one of the nicest uh, guys. Um, and well, thank thanks. you for coming on here and doing my new show. I'm looking forward to this. Thanks for reaching out. I was really excited uh, when you reached out because I love this kind of show. I mean, in general, I love just talking about movies, but I think your approach is really cool. You know, it's a movie time capsule. So it's like, well, what do I want people to see in the future? And also, what do I think is great? uh myself because i think those things go hand in hand when it comes to movies it is very subjective yeah so i like it i think it's a great concept there's no wrong answers when they're your favorites right that's right yeah exactly <laughs> have you seen anything good lately at, at home yeah i have i i just discovered a movie recently it's not a new movie necessarily i believe it came out in 1997 but i love it when you watch something that you've heard about before or maybe haven't even heard about but you go in blind and it just blows you away. And it was this movie called uh, Cure by Kiyoshi Kurosawa. No relation to Akira Kurosawa. Okay. Um, and he's kind of, he was like, he's the kind of director that was a journeyman filmmaker in Japan for many years. And then in the 90s, he started really making independent films on his own that were his sort of, I guess, voice, whatever you want to call it. And Cure is a horror movie that came out during the big J-horror craze of the 90s when like the grudge and the ring and all those movies were coming out but it was a little more under the radar and low, it was a low budget lower budget movie than those movies didn't get the it got a lot of critical acclaim but didn't get the notice that those movies did and i put it on the other night just, just random selection and i was like i'm watching one of my favorite movies of all time right now this is like one of the best viewing experiences i've ever had no way yeah just incredible like spell, blew me away spell the title Cure. It's at C U R E. C U R E. Just like a cure for yeah, yeah. And what was the year? Ninety seven. Ninety seven. Nineteen ninety seven. I'll have to go check that out. It's a supernatural movie, kind of, but also a mystery movie, and it's one of those great. It's great because it's one of those movies where you really have. It's dropping these breadcrumbs on the trail in the forest, and you're following them, and you really don't know where it's going, mm -hmm. but they are very intriguing breadcrumbs. And you can't wait to see how they're going to unveil the mystery of the movie as it goes on. I mean, it's essentially a serial killer movie, but it's not. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's so it's really cool. 
And uh, I think I've watched it three times in the last month. <laughs> no way. Yeah. And I immediately bought the Blu-ray too, which is, has only been, I think the only available Blu-ray disc is made by a company in the UK called Eureka. They do a great job with their releases and uh, highly recommend. My God, I'll have to watch it tonight. Yes, definitely. <laughs> Get on there. So just about everything that you have either directed or starred in as an actor was probably is considered to be horror. Mm -hmm. How did you get into that genre? Why is everything that you do in horror pretty much? <laughs> I think it's just because it's what I grew up loving. I grew up, uh, I think the, f the first movie that really blew me away as a kid was Jaws, which is essentially a horror movie. It's kind of a horror adventure movie, but that started... I was, I became obsessed with how, the way it took me on a journey and made me feel, even though I didn't understand at all what a movie was or how movies were made. When I got into college, I went to acting school and went down that route and started as an actor. But when I got out of school and started auditioning for things, I specifically pursued those kind of movies. I would always like really hone in on the auditions on breakdown services and casting notices that were horror movies and not really... Not many other actors did really did that, but that's, I don't think so. I was really pursuing that and that's how I got into it. And then, you know, I always wanted to, I think I always wanted to be on the production side of things too, growing up. And I just got into the acting thing and then I worked my way back. And I don't know, about 10 years ago, I started working on the other side of things too. And because I had gotten entrenched with the horror community here in Los Angeles and making those kinds of films, that's where I ended up. Which is good because it's what I love. <laughs> so that's pretty much how I started. When it comes to directing actors, is there a yeah. big difference um, from doing a horror movie to like doing a drama? Like, because mm. there's, a, I guess, a lot of things in horror aren't necessarily, you're not dialogue, you're not directing dialogue. You're, maybe you're directing a certain s jump or a certain scare or a yell or a, a reaction. Is there a difference there for you? That's. A really interesting question. I like what you said at the end of that because it is a more technical genre a lot of times, especially in terms of makeup effects and yeah, jump scares <laughs> and things like that. Um, so when it comes to that stuff, I think it's different from a drama, but otherwise I think the approach is about the same in terms of directing actors. And I think every actor is different too. Mm -hmm. um, so you really have to cater to what their needs are in terms of trust and comfort, but also you know, it's, yeah, it's just different with every actor. I think sometimes you got to consider what they're, if they're like story driven, like some actors want to approach it from the level of what the movie's trying to do. And then some other actors approach it from like, well, it's all about just the character and what they think is logical in that moment. Right. Um, with horror, things are just so over the top and um, the situations can be so outlandish sometimes that uh, projecting a logic onto it can be difficult. So I guess that's another difference between a drama or a comedy and horror is that in horror, you have to legitimize really weird moments sometimes to the actor and weird behavior. I mean, the whole scenario of going, you know, people are always complaining about people in horror movies going to check out noises upstairs. Yes. And it's like, why would you even go do <laughs> Like, why would you even go do that? And my answer to that whether I'm acting in something or directing an actor in something is, well, you have to prove to yourself that there's nothing wrong, you know? True. Like I directed this short film called Feeding Time one time where everyone complains about this babysitter goes exploring in this house when she hears noises, but 
she's got to take care of this baby. She can't just leave. Yes. And she's got to prove to herself that everything's really okay. So of course you go check it out. <laughs> That's always my <laughs> logic anyway. Yeah. And by the way, um, feeding time, I, I watched it recently on your, oh, on your Vimeo. Thanks. And for me personally, I don't really see horror movies that much because I don't get jump scared. I, you know, I guess as filmmakers, we kind of see it coming, but your movie feeding time made me jump, you know, in the reveal. And I was like, Oh my God, it's like five o'clock, you know, during the day. And it got me to jump. So, Oh, that's great. It was, I mean, from start to finish, that was such an enjoyable short. Um, oh, thank you. And I was just like, wow, it's been a while since I've jumped at a movie. So thank you. <laughs> thank and you. if you guys, uh, you guys should definitely check out Matt's uh, short feeding time. It is awesome. It's a great horror. It's also Really funny uh, as well. So um, definitely check that oh, out. Thanks. Thank you. That um, makes me this. Matt, makes my day. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, oh, crap. I've got some bad news. So the world is ending soon. We've got to get your time capsule ready. What is the first movie that you ever remember watching? Whoa. Return of the Jedi in the theater is my first movie memory. No and way. Was, yeah, my parents took me to see it, and I was three years old. I don't remember much, but the reason that's the first movie memory I have is I remember the speeder, the speeder chase in the woods oh. really scared me. Oh. Uh, that's all I remember <laughs> from, that, from that experience. But I know that's the first movie memory that I have, is that movie. Wow, it scared you, the, the speeder chase. Yeah, I thought they were, I mean, some of those speeders do hit trees, but I, I was really worried for... For the, for the heroes, like I didn't, I thought Luke was going to crash. And especially as a kid, seeing that on a big screen, it just scared me. Yeah. And this, the sound effects from that are incredible. Mm -hmm. Just the echo and the... Yeah, very, very. All that Ben Burt sound design. It's so scary. <laughs> Probably the only person who's ever said that scared me. But I was three, you know. Yeah, you're three. That's amazing that you got to see Star Wars in theaters. Your first yeah. movie. Not many people can say that. Uh, yeah, that's wild. <laughs> What is the first movie you ever purchased with your own money? Oh, wow. Oh, man. I think it was The Fugitive on, on VHS because mm. not only that was the first movie I think I went to by myself as a kid. I was obsessed with Harrison Ford at that time because <laughs> um, I just thought he was awesome because I loved Indiana, Indiana Jones and Star Wars, as we were just talking about. And I just, uh, when that came out on VHS, I... And back then, VHSs were really expensive, too. You had to chalk up like 50 bucks when they came out or something. It was really pricey. <laughs> Until, unless it, it, after a while, I'm sure that had to do with agreements with movie rental stores and stuff. But after a while, they would go down in price. But when you right. first bought it, when it first came out, they were, they were really pricey. Mm -hmm. um, but I, yeah, mowed lawns until I had enough money to buy it. And it was the fugitive. <laughs> yeah, Ken, what was yours? Do you remember what yours was? So, I mean, my family, we didn't really buy movies we always like recorded them off of like we had tons of just recordings of whatever tv and movies uh, from tv right we we're mostly that family so jurassic park was the first one i ever asked for as as a gift got it okay but that was also the first movie i bought the soundtrack for Interesting. i think i think i was like probably 11 when i had enough i actually had money that i was yeah. actually at, at a best buy and i had i was like oh <laughs> Yes, I could. I can buy things. What do I want to buy? Well, a movie soundtrack, of course. And then, what's the best one I've ever heard of? Is probably Jurassic Park. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. That that theme 
that plays. It, it's such a strong theme when they arrive at the island and the helicopter is swooping through the mountain range. Yes. And I remember seeing when I saw that movie in the theater, yeah, I wanted the score. And it's John Williams, like his melodies are all very recognizable, but I wanted that score so that I could imagine the movie at home, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And my neighbors, I'm sure, hated it because I would play it. I would blast it on this boombox I had in the backyard. And the neighbors probably hated my fam- me and my family. <laughs> my parents let me do that. Turn down the John Williams. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to call the cops. How many times do we have to hear the Jurassic Park theme in a day? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So to put your time capsule, what would be your favorite soundtrack? Ooh. So. I would have to go, I got to go with a John Carpenter score. John Carpenter, gun to my head, is probably my favorite director. Mm-hmm. Well, genre director. God, oh, see, this is so hard. This is the kind of thing. <laughs> this is where we go. This is where this kind of thing gets really hard. Um, but in terms of music, I would definitely pick a John Carpenter score. This is always changing. I would probably go with The Fog. Because The okay. Fog is a very elegant I, uh, obviously I love electronic scores and synth synth scores. Yeah. So that's part of the reason I love Carpenter and he is great at, at melodies that stick in your head, but also don't call so much attention to themselves that they distract from what's happening in the movie. And the yes. fog is a great example of that because it's, it has a really beautiful melody that's also creepy that very much represents the film and the film is the film is a, essentially a ghost story. And the score is very, very evocative and lyrical and it, 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 it sets a real mood. Yeah. Just a great score. So I'd pick that one. Fantastic. Yeah. What is the movie that you quote most in your daily life? This is really tough. I don't know that I go to that many uh, is it like a line before someone kills someone like a final death blow line <laughs> yeah it probably is it's probably like uh, I mean I don't quote it that much one of my favorite deliveries is probably in Jaws it's you're going to need a bigger boat I mean that's just like yes, Scheider's of delivery of that line is just so perfect and it's hilarious and because he plays it so seriously and the terror on his face is so identifiable. And I love that he's just got this cigarette dangling out of, dangling out of his <laughs> mouth. He's lost all awareness of everything else. He just wants to get out of there. Um, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. It's not something I quote a lot or say a lot, but I just, I think of that when I think of like the best, one of the best lines of all time. That's what I'm going to go. That's a perfect, perfect line. What is the movie that has made you laugh the hardest hmm i'm gonna go with martin scorsese's after hours that movie makes me laugh so hard it's uh it's one of my favorite movies i'll say that okay would definitely be be a time that has to go in a damn time capsule because (laughs) it's it's uh it's a very energetic movie have you ever seen after hours i don't think i have no okay it's it's mid eighties, um, all in one night comedy. It's like there was that subgenre in the mid eighties where there are a ton of these all in one night zany madcap comedies came out. There was after hours, which is the pinnacle. It's the best. 
And then you had uh, John Landis made one called Into the Night. There was uh, Blind Date, the Blake Edwards movie, which was uh, an early Bruce Willis movie. <laughs> it's, that one's not great. <laughs> Um, but there were a bunch of these. Uh, Miracle Mile is another one with Anthony Edwards. There's a bunch of these movies, and to varying degrees, they're comedies and thrillers, and they just are like kitchen sink comedies. They throw in everything. But After Hours is a very dark comedy. It came at a moment where Martin Scorsese uh, was fighting for his filmmaking life. The first version of Last Temptation of Christ had fallen apart. Um, he had gotten really not great reviews off of... Uh, the king of comedy and it was very hard for him to get a movie going. Yeah. And he got an opportunity, basically the star of after hours, Griffin Dunn was producing his own movies at the time. And he, he, his number one choice to direct after hours was Martin Scorsese and Scorsese agreed to it. The budget was super low, but it was like, and the schedule was extremely fast and he just, it, he poured everything into it. Uh, Scorsese did to, just prove that he could still do something fast and save his career. Okay. And it's basically this all in one night thing where this guy just meets this woman in a diner and she gives him her number and he is a kind of a sexually repressed guy. And he just calls her that night and he's like, Hey, uh, just wanted to, you know, I was curious about this. Your friend, you said your friend makes these sculptures, these plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweights. And she's like, I think you should come over. We should hang out. So he goes to hang out with her down in Soho in New York. And it becomes just a night from hell, just a horrible night. And I think to get back to the point, <laughs> so long winded, uh, that movie makes me laugh more than anything because it puts you in his position. This guy who just wants to have a fun night, a simple night on a, and have a good day. And it, it's like the fates are out to destroy him. And right. I find that kind of movie very, very funny when someone is, it's just, it's, it's relatable. It's funny in, in how relatable it is. You, this guy is just getting pummeled and in an unbelievable way at a certain point, <laughs> everything that can go wrong, wrong does go wrong. Yeah. And, uh, his pain is so funny to me. <laughs> I think that's what I find funny is someone getting tortured. Um, what's his, what's his character like? Is he like, what makes him so you know laughable? Like, why do you laugh at him? He's the most average guy you can imagine who just wants to live his life and not be, he, he's, he's a, he has a job actually that I don't think anyone has now. He's a word processor, which is, he, he's essentially a, a guy who is a typist. Yeah. And um, you see the movie opens with him at his job. It's a very mundane job and he lives a pretty mundane existence. So he's out, you know, he meets this girl and it's like, she seems really cool. Played by Rosanna Arquette, who was, was gorgeous. And at that time was uh, an up and comer. And uh, yeah, he's just an average guy and very relatable, you know, and he he's put through you know, he meets this zany cast of characters. I mean, the other thing that's so funny about the movie is it's Catherine O'Hara, Terry Garr, um, Cheech and Chong. I mean, the cast is bananas, you know, it's this ensemble of great eighties comedians, you know, people like that. So, and it's a very like dark movie and it's very, it's Scorsese moving the camera more than he ever had. Like he always moves the camera in a really dynamic way. And this is like, I mean, he's putting the camera like these huge 35 millimeter cameras 
yeah. on on bungee cords and throwing them off of buildings, literally. What? <laughs> it's, yeah, to get certain shots. Um, Jesus. So it's pretty. It's a pretty wild movie. Um, you've, given, you've given me another another movie to put on my list for today. Yeah, there you go. To watch. <laughs> <laughs> that makes me laugh more than anything. That movie. I love it. Okay, are you much of a crier? What's what's the movie that that makes you cry the most? Oh man, okay. <laughs> flip the emotion. Cry, yeah. I do. I I do. Um, I tend to get emotional with movies where people are have a personal struggle or there's a team struggle, like people overcoming the odds. Um, yeah. You know, I think the first kind of movie that comes to mind is something like Hoosiers or Rudy, like a sports movie. I'm not much of a sports guy, but when you when you get personal like that and you have yes. a group that has to come together to overcome something, I would say that kind of movie really can get me. But uh-huh. the, the movie, so I saw this question on your email and you said that this could be a possibility. And I was like, oh God, I hope that doesn't come up. But, but the one... That, the first one that popped in my head weirdly isn't that kind of movie. Cause I had to really think about what was the last movie that really made me cry. Yeah. And I think the one that there's a movie I revisit every couple of years cause I really like it. And I, I don't even know why it gets me emotional at the end. I think it's because it's about a family coming together at the end. Mm-hmm. Excuse me, but it's this Jeff Nichols movie called um, take shelter. Have you seen take shelter? I don't think so. Okay. So Jeff Nichols is a, from he did mud uh loving yeah. is his most recent um midnight Lovely. special yeah mud is fantastic uh that's one of my favorite mcconaughey performances and it's it's just that's a great movie but um the second movie jeff nichols made after shotgun he was first movie is called shotgun stories and then he made take shelter and take shelter is about the lead is uh michael shannon and he plays a guy who keeps having these visions of of like epic thunderstorms filled with tornadoes and hail and like just this, this epic weather event coming to destroy humanity. But it's done in a very, you know, it's not like a Roland Emmerich movie. It's not some giant, it's very, um, the effects are relatively, relatively subtle. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you see stuff, you see storm effects and all that, but, but, but they are very devastating and they're very scary. And he's having these visions and he can't decide Michael Shannon's character can't decide if they are premonitions of something coming or if he is going crazy like his mother. Right. And he, you know, he's a blue collar guy. The movie takes place in the middle of Ohio, middle of like Midwest. His wife is played by Jessica Chastain and he has a small, a deaf daughter. And he's just trying to make ends meet. You can tell that they, you know, they just got enough money together to buy a house and they, 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 they make ends meet, but it's a struggle sometimes is the impression you get. And I don't want to give away too much. <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's, it's quite a journey to watch this movie, but there's a, the, the movie is one of those great movies that doesn't give you anything easy. And what I like about that is that, you it really puts you in the in in bed with the protagonists with this family and you you want them to succeed and yeah. overcome overcome what the challenges might be and i think because you identify so much with the family the end of the movie the way that movie ends 
I, I cry. I get, it gets me every time. I ball. I just cry. I just, yeah, I just cry. And it's a combination. It's a perfect combination too of like the music. There's it has a great score, uh-huh. uh, which I think was done by Jeff Nichols' brother. I think his brother did the score for the movie. Oh wow! And um, and she, Michael Shannon is very. Yeah, you know, he's he's thought of I think as a villain a lot, but he's he's so relatable and so understated in the movie. And you you're just oh, I, I want to say it came out in 2011, so it was just before he and Jessica Chastain like really blew up, you know? Yeah, yeah. And they can't have had. I mean, the move budget must have been tiny on this movie too. I think it was one of those things where they called in favors for all the visual effects and all. That. Mm. But this guy is just. Again, I don't want to give away too much, but he's, he, 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 he starts doing things in his life to, 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 to ready for the potential of something horrible happening. And you don't, you, you're in, you know, you, you identify with him, but at the same time, you're like, oh my God, don't destroy your life. You, you, you know, don't do this to your family. But you're like, what if, you know? So it really puts you in his position. And, and I think that's why, because he's so really, that's why at the end, I just get, I just get so emotional, but I'm not going to say what the ending is. Because okay, that's good. to be discovered. Good, because I have yet to discover this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's it's great. It's Take Shelter is probably my favorite Jeff Nichols movie. Still, it's great. All right, all right. Have you ever walked out on a movie? Is there a movie that's walk outable for you? I've come close. I don't think I ever have, but there aren't many I would. The only movies that I that bother me are ones where it's just like like something that's really messagey or I find morally reprehensible or it's just like people are like, it's exploitive and the people are just getting like tortured for no, I, I came, you know what movie, hmm, God, my horror friends would chastise me for this, but a movie that I didn't, I haven't walked out on or stopped watching, but that really bothers me a lot is the original um, last house on the left. I don't know if you've seen that, but man, that's a tough sit. It's just. What year is that? I think it was 1973 and it had the famous uh, ad campaign where the, the, in the trailer, the narrator goes, if you are watching the terrors of last house on the left, just keep reminding yourself. It's only a movie, only a movie, (laughs) only a movie, only a movie. And it echoes. And it had a, it was a great ad campaign and I can't deny it's a really effective movie i mean it is gut-wrenching and really it just by the end of it i'm so wrung out i think i've seen it twice i tr- i gave it another shot a couple of years ago because i saw it the first time i saw it i was in my early 20s and then i gave it another shot a couple of years ago it's essentially a remake of the virgin spring but it's so you're watching these young people just get literally eviscerated and emotionally tortured by these hooligans. (laughs) But the movie, the movie also has these weird moments of levity. Like there's this, there's this part where these, there's these goofy cops who are trying to, it's a very uneven movie. And then when it gets serious, for me, it just, it gets so icky that I, I have a really hard time with it. That's the one for me. I mean, I, I don't think I can ever, I don't think I'll watch that movie again. Yeah. <laughs> you know? All right. There um, you go. Yeah. Last house on the left. That's my choice. I, I, last time I watched it, when I gave it another shot, I don't think I made it to the end. So no. that's my walkout. 
All right. Oh my God. If anyone hears that, they're going to kill me. Friends of mine would be really upset with that. It's not, Craven had not, I don't think at that point he had figured out his style and what was appropriate or what, like what worked uh, stylistically in a movie yet or how to, how to visually tell a story. Let me put it that way. How to visually tell a story. So it's just an inappropriate, the movie's just, it's just, I mean, it's effective. I'll give it that, but it's not for me. <laughs> well, I hope your hope your friends do not kill you. If so, it was, uh, we have your time capsule to, uh, that will save your memory. Right. I'll live on with my time capsule. I'm dead. I'm a dead man. But I'll live on with, the, with this time, guys. <laughs> okay, let's flip it. What's what's the movie that most people in the world hate, but you love? Mm. <laughs> this is ridiculous. I'm going to... The movie that most people hate, that I love, this movie is so derided, and it's so... It's a dumb... <laughs> what most people consider a dumb horror sequel. But I love it. That movie is Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers. <laughs> this is a movie that is a total, uh, you know, riddled with production problems. It's, a, it's one of those, like, deep in a franchise horror sequels that was nearly straight to video. It was ripped to shreds when it came out. It doesn't make a lot of sense, plot-wise. <laughs> but there's something about Halloween 6 that I love. And I think it's because for starters, I'm a huge fan of the Halloween franchise. Halloween is my favorite horror movie for sure. And I know there are bad, there are very, very bad installments in that franchise that I don't like. I will see every Halloween movie when it comes out. I have to, no matter good or bad. You're in it. But Halloween six is one that everybody agrees is a terrible movie and I absolutely love it. And I probably watch it at least once a year, if not twice. <laughs> okay. it's, like this, it's a weird comfort slasher movie. And it's also where they for sure did. They didn't just jump the shark at Halloween six. They did a barrel roll over the shark on fire in Halloween six. <laughs> and it's a movie where they try to explain the, what makes the killer Michael Myers evil um, it's, there's a cult. It's just, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's a very unfortunate swan song for Donald Pleasance who spent all that whole franchise being the, you know, the character who's pursuing Michael Myers, uh, the, the psychiatrist, Dr. Loomis, who's pursuing him. I mean, it's just, it's not, I objectively know it's not a good movie, but I also, it is really kinetically shot and it's, it looks great. And it's the only Halloween movie that really feels like it's actually taking place in a small town at autumn. They all are supposed to feel that way, but even the classic original Halloween has palm trees in it. So I'm just, <laughs> I just, I like Halloween six. I can't help it. That's well, the one I'll go. go to the map for it. And it's scary. It's also scary. Like there's some great jump scares in it. And the mask is just one of the better masks of the series. Cause there's some bad Michael Myers masks in that series. That was a good one. And Paul Rudd. Okay. Paul Rudd's in it. First Paul Rudd movie ever made. First role for Paul Rudd. Ever. Oh my God. I did not know that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Matt Mercer will fight to the death if you don't like Halloween 6. That's damn right. I will find you. <laughs> what movie... Now this, this question can be taken two, two ways, or maybe more than two ways. But 
what movie physically gives you goosebumps? Mm. Zodiac. David Venture's Zodiac. Uh, I just rewatched that recently, which is part of the reason that it immediately pops in my head. But talking about a movie, what's that? I said, God, yeah, because I am right yeah. there with you. Yeah. It gives me, nothing gives me bigger goosebumps than the scene where uh, Graysmith, Jake Gyllenhaal's character, goes to the house to find the writing sample on the, on the movie poster. The posters, yeah. Yes, to meet the guy. And when they go in the basement, when the guy turns to him and turns off that light, the overhead light, I lose my shit. <laughs> I, like, I mean, it just, it sends a chill down my spine, no matter how many times I watch that movie. And again, I think part of the reason that it does that is because you, that's, I think maybe my favorite movie about obsession. And you are so, you're so with those characters. That movie is something I was thinking about when I watched it last time is it's like the densest movie ever made in terms of information. It's like, yeah, it, yeah. Right. It's like, a total just police procedural, but there's so much going on. It, it's, it stays so active and kinetic and you are with those characters a hundred percent. Um, the, the, uh, Gyllenhaal character, Graysmith, um, Danny, Robert Danny Jr.'s character and, um, Mark Ruffalo's character. Uh, oh God, I'm forgetting the character names, but, uh, Toski, that's, that's, uh, uh, Ruffalo's character, but yep. yeah, I think the reason that becomes so scary is because y- you've gone on this whole journey trying to find this killer, and you come to that moment, and this you, you know that Gyllenhaal's obsession has blinded him, and he's at this place, and you're like, get out of there! <laughs> and you know when the the shot where he looks up, he's like, is there someone else here? And the floorboards are creaking up above the dust. Yeah, the dust, the dust, that sense of, I'm getting a shiver right now talking about it. Yeah. It makes me, yeah, (laughs) you got goosebumps. (laughs) My arm is, there's, there's also an additional scene in that movie that I'll I'll bring up, but the actor who's playing the, the artist, the the movie poster creator, Mm -hmm. he is so creepy. And I recently found out that he plays the voice of a very beloved cartoon mm. character, <laughs> Roger Rabbit. I was like, oh my God, that is the strangest character mashup or not mashup, but for one person to play the, this lighthearted role and then just be ultimately so scre- He's not creepy, but he turns out to be creepy in our eyes. Cause we don't know his prerogative in the movie. Right. Um, it's yeah. so wild that he's Great the voice choice. of Roger Rabbit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah. And he also, yeah, he, he's always played sort of goofy guys or nice guys in movies. I think he's in nightmare on Elm street as well as like a doctor. Yeah. It's like, I never would have thought of him in that kind of role, but when he's down in that basement and he's top lit and his eyes are all sunken in looking and he's hunched over, you're like, Gyllenhaal, get out of there. What are you get out of there? This guy is going to eat you for dinner. (laughs) His, so his little, his low whisper, the way that he talks is so intense and and scary. I don't, I don't know why. Yeah. When they're in the kitchen and he walks over and he goes, I did those posters. (laughs) Oh my God. Yeah. It's great. (laughs) The scene that really gets me, it's the couple early on in the film when they're at the, the lake. Mm, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, there's something, something about a film that's, a true and B happens in day in broad daylight. It's just so totally. terrifying to see someone come at you with a knife and 
it I think it's a long take. It just keeps going and you just see the stabs, stabs, stabs into their into their back, just multiple, multiple stabs. Yeah, that's really terrifying. That's that's the other scene I think of as well. Yeah. It's broad daylight. It doesn't shy away and the performances are so grounded. It's just like yeah, it's it's really unsettling <laughs> that whole scene. Yeah. Um, that's yeah. honestly I think one of the things about your movie Feeding Time is the jump scare for me it took place in the brightest part of the of the house. It takes place at night, but it happens yeah. in, in the in the in the well brightly lit kitchen. It gets you right there. You don't think it's coming, and it does. Yeah, uh, I'm so glad that worked for you. We try. I tried to come up with a way to divert the audience to another thing, so that when it came out of left field, it was surprising. It's perfect. Yeah. Um. Okay. Speaking of perfection, oh boy, what is objectively the best horror movie of all time? So I, like I said before, my favorite is Halloween. Right. Um, and I do think that is objectively one of the best ever made. If you watch it a lot, you can see flaws. Um, they, they shot that so fast. There's, you can see wind fans <laughs> in windows and palm trees, which it takes place in Illinois. There shouldn't be palm trees, things like that. <laughs> um, but I'll try a different tack because I, it, it, you, said it, you, you said objectively, right? Objectively. I'll go with No Country for Old Men. Okay. Which I, I know that that can, a lot of people would debate that that's, it's not a conventional horror movie, but I think it is a horror movie. If you had to really, you know, distill that into what genre it is, I, that's a horror movie to me. Because kind of like, I mean, you could compare it to Halloween. There's an unstoppable, strangely principled killer at the center of that movie. Um, yeah, uh, Anton Chigurh, and I think uh, the reason I say that that is objectively the best horror movie is because it is about an untenable, un, un indescribable evil. Yes, that's even bigger than its three main characters, and it's coming from you can't stop it. I mean, the whole movie right. that that discussion repeatedly happens in the movie with the law enforcement characters. You know, there's that scene at the end where Tommy Lee, near the end, where Tommy Lee Jones is sitting with an old colleague of his, and he's like, you, the other guy says, you can't see what's coming, and what's with these kids these days? You know, green hair, bones in their noses, and you know, they're having, they just, the, the three main characters, Brolin, Tommy Lee Jones, and the Anton Chigurh character, what's that actor's name? I can't think of his name. Javier. Javier Bardem. Bardem. Jeez. See, this is old man brain. I also had uh, too much whiskey last night. Well, <laughs> I'm fine. Um, but uh, yeah, Javier Bardem and Tommy Lee Jones and Josh Brolin, their characters are these archetypes of villains and heroes. And they see the world in a very like, even if we don't fully understand the way they see it, especially the Bardem character, uh, Shigur, we, that we know they have principles based on something that they identify, but they can't, the world is changing and they can't stop it. And, um, and it's going to destroy them and everyone else. <laughs> I mean, really it's, it's also just a movie about like death. I mean, you, you, it's going to happen one day yeah. and it's not going to happen when you want it to happen or when you choose, it's just going to happen. And I think 
Bardem's character, Anton Chigurh, is an angel of death. Like he, he even says, I don't make this choice. This, the chance brought me here. Right. He's like the Grim Reaper in a really weird way. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so I think um, on top of that, that's just an expertly made movie. That's the best, for me, that's the best movie the Coen brothers have made, have made. And it's, yeah, it's just every shot leads to the next one perfectly. It's perfect visual storytelling. There's nothing that needs to go. There's nothing more needed. It, every every action sequence and every sequence of violence is perfectly calibrated. I just I can't I can't think of a movie that's subjectively better than that in terms of horror and what it's about. You know, yeah. I, I mean that is a horror movie in its essence. And th- that last monologue by Tommy Lee Jones is about this, how terrifying the unknown is mm-hmm. and how. Uh, you, you cannot predict what evil's going to do, when it's going to come, and when you're going to die. Yeah, yeah, that's so amazing <laughs> that you said you know that it's a horror movie. I've never thought of it that way, but when I started dissecting it right now in my brain, I'm like, oh yeah, it totally is. Like you have this <laughs> unstoppable evil force that's hunting people down, and you don't know why. And um, like that's the scene towards the end of the movie when he's like in the hotel and mm, yeah. you know, he's just, he's in the dark. He's waiting for, um, sugar to come down the hallway. It's like pure horror right there. You t- oh the scene where you talking about where he can hear him coming and the light bulb, he turns, you, you hear the light bulb squeaking and you see the light go out <laughs> under the door. Yeah. I mean, that is another one kind of like the Zodiac scene we were talking about. That gives me goosebumps when he's, when you hear, Brolin makes the call to the front desk. The phone just keeps ringing and you can hear it distantly. And then you hear the footsteps and he's like, Oh my God, he's coming. He's found me. That is, that's right up there with that basement scene. That's genius. It's so scary. Oh, okay. We could keep going about that movie for days. Um, What's the movie that means the most to you? Not because it's an amazing movie as amazing quality, um, but because of the experience that you saw it under or associate it with that it will always be special to you. Man, that's an awesome question because I think that the viewing experience can, can really have a lot to do with the movie itself being your, one of your favorites, you know? Uh, okay. This is wild. This wasn't even something I was considering on my list. You just, uh, Threw me for a curve. This is a curveball. This, this. <laughs> before we did this, by the way, I made a, a just a list of potential movies. You know, yeah, that could fit some of the questions and categories you talked about. This wasn't even something I thought about. I haven't thought about this movie in a while, honestly. But something that really opened my eyes to something I'd never considered was one of the best movie going experiences I've ever had. Was in college. I went to school at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And the next town over was Durham. And there was this old school movie palace called, uh, called the Carolina theater. And while I was in school there, they started a film festival called, um, the Nevermore film festival. And it, it, it wasn't, they didn't at that time, I think the festival still exists and they show new stuff now, but back then it was all repertory retro screenings. Okay. Now I was a horror fan at that time, but it was all like pretty obvious stuff. And this, I want to say this was like my freshman year of college or sophomore year of college. 
so I liked Halloween, Evil Dead, Reanimator, like stuff that like B, A and B classics. But I didn't know foreign cinema at all. And I didn't know how, there were so many doors of genre films that had not opened to me yet. And so this Nevermore Film Festival starts up and I go to the theater to see whatever they've programmed. And they had a print, a pretty decent looking print of a movie directed by Lucio Fulci, an Italian director called The Beyond. I went in blind. I didn't know Fulci from Argento or Bob, any of these Italian horror directors from the 70s who really influenced American 80s horror cinema, which we can talk about after this. But I go into this movie. It's the craziest fucking thing. It was a a transformative, um, crazy experience seeing that movie because I had no idea this kind of thing even existed. It's crazy. It's about, I don't even know how to describe (laughs) the beyond, but it's basically about a house that sits on top of a gateway to hell. And the people who live in the house start to discover this. And there's a doctor who tries to, it's just this, it's a super wild movie and I don't want to give away too much of it, but suffice it to say, it has some of the craziest gore effects that I didn't think you could even do this kind of stuff and get away with it on screen. Now there was a, an American version released around the same time it came out in the early eighties. And I want to say the title is something like seven doors of death or something like that. But if you see it, you got to see the uncut, the Italian version, the beyond. Um, that it's a great gateway into Italian horror, which is extremely vibrant, exuberant in its gore. Um, there's a scene where a guy uh, is in a library and some lightning strikes outside and he falls off of a ladder looking at some books and when he lands on the floor he's paralyzed for some reason and then tarantulas come out of the shelves and eat his eyeballs <laughs> like just eat his eyeballs out and there's a shot a close-up of a tarantula slowly pulling his eyeball out oh i mean it is God. it is insane but unlike last house on the left where it's just depressing like we were talking about earlier this is so over the top and wild with very bright red blood and crazy bat shit gore effects. I mean, you just, there's, it's one of the best experiences I've ever had in a theater. And it made me realize the, how, not just with horror, but how there were kinds of movies I hadn't even seen and how like you can, there's, there's so much potential. That's what it was. It really made me understand the potential of cinema and movies and what you could do and how far you could take things. Yeah. You know? Trying to sum that up from just listening to that. Is it, it sounds like when you went and saw the beyond, it's like you discovered that there was a new color that you never, that you never saw in your life. Right. Like That's it's it. just a brand new experience. Brand new experience. I didn't think that that color existed on any palette. I didn't know that, that, that that kind of movie existed and it opened me up to like, Italian horror in in general. I just didn't know about that. And to see that a movie like that for the first time on a giant screen in in 35 on a print was really, really cool too. Yeah. Um, 
Did you get to talk to people afterwards that were that was also their first time seeing it? Like, and I didn't have any friends who liked this stuff, <laughs> so I went by myself. And there, and there were, and I think there were seven people in the theater. <laughs> like, literally, there were, there were maybe seven <laughs> people there in this giant theater. Um, now, that shame. festival, though, like the next year, it really started to gain momentum. And I, I remember the next year, like the headlining movie was was uh, a three D print of Friday the Thirteenth Part Three, which that's really fun because that movie is tailor-made to be seen in 3d like there's you know eyeballs shooting out at the screen and <laughs> people do popcorn flying at the screen all kinds of stuff so that movie or i'm sorry that festival gained more popularity but that first year and i don't think anybody in that area i mean it was in the middle of you know north carolina nobody really knew what that was um right <laughs> there's always like you know, there's always in different areas where wherever you are, there's always you can always find groups of rabid genre fans and horror fans. But uh, yeah, there were probably seven people there, and I didn't really. I was too. I, I was too uh, was shy <laughs> to talk to anybody. <laughs> but yeah, that was a transformative experience to see. I, you really put it best. I, I didn't know that that existed. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Another one from my list. I love yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah, any any Fulci or Bava, and obviously Argento, you know, Tenebre is like one of the best slasher movies of all time. There, the the Italian horror cinema of the seventies and eighties. That's just it, it's so vibrant and vi- very it's very violent and very gory, but it's so vibrant and. Yeah. Um, over the time, I mean, it's just, it's unlike we, nobody, nobody was doing that here, here at that time that way. It's cool. Okay. It looks like your time capsule is pretty much full. I think we've got space for one more. Okay. What is the movie that would sum up the good of humanity? The good of humanity. It's so hard because the inclination again is to go for something where it's like a team thing. Mm-hmm. Or something where we're fighting for our survival, like one of those Roland Emmerich movies, uh, yes. like Independence Day. I mean, part of me wants to just say, screw it, Independence Day. Because it's, <laughs> you know, you have this band of p- disparate people from all over the country, and you got Bill Pullman as the, as the damn president, and people come speech. together to fight. The, yeah, that speech. That speech is so good. Uh, I, love, I, I love Bill Pullman. Um, and pretty inspired casting, by the way. Yeah. Him as the president. I would never have even at that time thought of that. Awesome. Um, you know what? (laughs) That's my movie. I'm going with Independence Day. I can't think of a better example of like humanity coming together on a popcorn fun level and overcoming the odds. Yes. Uh, and Randy Quaid before he went absolutely crazy. Insane. Insane. It's very unfortunate what's happened there, but, you know, flying that ship right into the the ass of a a giant ship. Yeah. I mean, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome. Yeah. That is such an enjoyable movie. I can watch it over and over. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? I do. Can I give a serious answer too, though? Okay. Go ahead. Finish what you were saying. I'm sorry. I mean, it is like, it's it's super popcorn-y, but there's something about everyone coming together from just, you know, off the street to air force, to the president, like all for one common goal. What, I mean, it is for space aliens, but still like 
it makes you feel good watching that movie. It does. You feel so good at the end and you, you know, I was talking earlier about identifying with the characters. Like these are pretty broad characters, but you still like, like all of them and you want them to succeed. And, right. and the odds are, I remember seeing that in the theater when I was a teenager and it just, the odds are pretty insurmountable in that movie. I mean, I don't think I'd ever seen them even like the natural disaster movies of the seventies, like the Irwin Allen stuff. You never saw landmarks like the white house getting destroyed like that. Like that was no. pretty cool, you know? Um, so that's my popcorn answer. I just thought of something though that's not, I, this also was not on my initial list I made for this, but I also think I, I want to also do a serious answer because I thought of a movie that I think shows the, so you said the good of humanity, okay. right? I think the good of humanity in cinema is sometimes not just seen in a movie where people band together. I think it's seen, I think you see the good of humanity and the potential, the potential of humanity when you see a mixed bag of things too. And you see the dark side of humanity up against uh, the light side. And yeah. when you see people are people and you have an ensemble of people trying to live their daily lives up against um, systemic problems. So the other movie I just thought of is do the right thing. Spike Lee's do the right thing. Yeah. I think that is one of the best American films ever made about people and the way we behave under pressure. And I think it really shows us at our worst and our best. And it's a tough movie. I, I it, it, well, okay. One of the great things about it is it, it takes place in Bedside, Brooklyn in the eighties at a time where racial tensions were high and it's the hottest day of the summer, like physically the day itself. It's like, it's, it takes place in this perfect pressure cooker scenario on the hottest day of the summer. And obviously not just right now, but for throughout time and the existence of America, race is an issue. It's a hot button issue. It's, and that movie, the way that movie approaches it in the microcosm of that neighborhood at that moment, mm. there's nothing better. That is a, it's the, I, I, it's my favorite Spike Lee movie. It's probably, it's on my top 10 of all time for sure. But I think the riot that happens at the end of that movie and then what happens after that, the scene with Mookie after that, Spike Lee's character after that at the very end and the cross section of people that you, of characters and the people that you have in that movie, I don't think there's a better panoramic view or kaleidoscopic view of of an issue that's really important but also shows the potential of who we can be whether we do it or not so that's my answer there it is that's a great <laughs> answer spike lee yeah i love it all right matthew i'm matthew all right, Matt. <laughs> Take it. Uh, it is time to lock up the capsule. So because this is a low budget show, I don't have uh, money for sound effects. I need you to do the Foley for your sound effect of the capsule closing. Okay, my capsule. I'm going to close my capsule. Here we go.
<laughs> that was more of an opening sound, but that's it. It could be though. I could totally see it being like the ending of a of a of one of your movies where you just like it's you think it's going to do one thing and and it just flips and yeah, that, <laughs> unpredictable that, ending. Yeah, that was like a crappy airlock from a Tex Avery cartoon or something. I don't know what that was. It <laughs> was really bad. Oh, this has been so much fun. Uh, yeah, this I think awesome. I have to like bring you back for a part two because there's a lot of questions that we haven't gotten to yet, but we I know. need to later. I apologize. I'm very long winded. I just I get very excited talking about movies and no, I really great. apologize for the editing you're going to have to do on this. Uh, <laughs> but there's so much good stuff here. I, I mean, this is honestly, it's been it's been so educational and I love talking to people that love movies. There's nothing better. Thanks. And um, is there anything that you want to direct people towards and that you're working on currently or that's going to come out? Sure. Uh, my handle on social media on Twitter and Instagram is Mercer Shark. Just how it sounds, my last name plus the word shark. And uh, yeah, I have a movie uh, movie I uh, co-directed a couple of years ago with my buddy Mike. It's called Dementia Part 2. Uh, it's coming out in May. Uh, it'll be a theatrical, whatever that's going to look like pandemic-wise in May. Yeah. We'll have a theatrical. And then, and then June is disc and VOD. And it's a horror, it's a horror comedy sort of in the... Um, early Peter Jackson vibe. It's like dead alive or like an early Sam Raimi kind of movie, yeah. like evil dead. Very goofy. Uh, Mike directed the original dementia. The first one, which is a pretty straightforward psychological dramatic thriller. And, um, we thought it'd be funny to make a completely unrelated sequel. That <laughs> it's a complete in, mid midnight movie in 30 days. That's from, right. Yeah, we we made it because we were we were challenged by a film festival. This guy who runs a film festival in Chicago. Um, all these genre festivals are always coming up with gimmicks to for the for the different festivals. And he hit us up through some producers we know and said, "I'm going to reserve a slot for an unmade film, uh, and you guys, uh, I'm going to I'm going I'm to challenge you guys to make a feature film in yeah 30 days. It was a little more than that. It was like five weeks. Okay." Uh, from script to script, you can't, you can't start making the film until we announce the schedule of the festival. So we started writing it, uh, when they announced the schedule and they said, we're, there's a empty slot here. These guys are going to fill it with something they're about to make. And, uh, the producers on it, uh, had produced the first dementia, which Mike had directed. So we were like, well, I guess it should be called dementia part two. Cause that's funny. Not that anyone, <laughs> not too many people saw the first dementia. But, um, and yeah. And so we, yeah, sh wrote it, shot it and cut it in about five weeks. And, um, you know, it came out pretty good considering. <laughs> I, it looks a lot of like a lot of fun. I've, I've seen the trailer and I'm, I am looking oh, forward you. to it for sure. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. yeah. It's fun. I mean, you can feel the fun we had making it just getting friends together and you know going for it yeah. yeah very cool thanks all right mr mercer thank you so much again for spending your time with us this has been awesome oh man um, thanks thanks for having me sorry if I, if I chewed your ears off incessantly <laughs> no it was long, very long-winded it's been it's been so fun um, I also want to thank uh, Brett Goldstein for inspiring this podcast he has a podcast called uh, films to be buried with uh, it's very similar to this one. So if you like this one, go check that out. And finally, thank you to all of you for listening. And I hope it encourages you to check out some new movies or revisit some old ones. And um, 
I do wish that we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. <laughs> <laughs>